Tēnā koutou nō mai, hi to mai, welcome to Q&A, I'm Jack Tang. Today, as China looks to extend its influence in the Pacific, a stark warning. It's time for New Zealand to push back. We clearly need to fortify our independent foreign policy, and that means doing things we haven't done before. Then more interest rate hikes are coming, and they're coming even faster than previously expected. So what's it going to mean for Kiwi property owners if our economy moves into a recession? And then a little project hidden away in the detail of last week's budget, which could dramatically change one of New Zealand's poorest communities. Come under the kōrawai of Ngāti Toa, and we'll do what we can to support the uh, well-being and prosperity of your people and mana. As we go to air this morning, China's foreign minister is preparing to meet with his counterparts from across the Pacific as China seeks support for a sweeping economic and security deal that would fundamentally change the dynamics in the region. The deal is only the latest step in the intensifying strategic contest over influence in the Pacific. On one side, Australia, the US and Japan, and on the other side, China. In September last year, the US, UK and Australia announced an historic security deal that'll see Australia acquire nuclear-powered submarines. It was widely seen as an effort to counter China's influence in the Pacific, and China responded by calling the AUKUS deal extremely irresponsible. Then, February 4th, the opening of the Winter Olympics, and with the world's attention on Beijing, China and Russia announced an historic deal. Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin described it as a no-limits partnership, covering basically everything. When the deal was announced, Moscow said it opposed independence for Taiwan, and China said it opposed NATO membership for Ukraine. Three weeks later, Russia launched its invasion. Then in March, leaked documents revealed another deal, this time closer to home. A draft security pact between China and the Solomon Islands, which analysts worried would let China deploy its forces in the Pacific, or even build a military base. The deal was the first of its kind in the Pacific, where most nations have been closely aligned with Australia, New Zealand and Western powers. When the deal was formally signed at the end of April, Australia's then opposition party described it as the country's greatest foreign policy failing since World War II. Fast forward then to this week. Joe Biden met with the Prime Ministers of Australia, India and Japan in Tokyo. In a press conference, Biden was in this exchange when asked about US policy in Taiwan. Are you willing to get involved militarily to defend Taiwan if it comes to that? Yes. You are? That's the commitment we made. The next day, yet another draft deal was leaked. This one showing China wants a broad economic security pact with 10 more Pacific nations. Australia is scrambling. New Foreign Minister Penny Wong flew at short notice to Fiji at the same time as China's Foreign Minister Wang Yi was welcomed to the Solomon Islands at the start of an eight-nation tour through the Pacific. So then, where does all of this leave New Zealand? Foreign Minister Nanaia Mahuta declined our interview request. And apart from a trip to the Solomon Islands, she has no other plans to visit Pacific nations outside of the regular Pacific Islands Forum, although she may also speak face-to-face -face with some leaders at the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting in Rwanda. But China analyst Rodney Jones says we need to do more. He's a principal of Asian-based macro advisors Wigram Capital Partners. And I began by asking what he makes of the developments in the Pacific this week. Oh, look, it's, it's just that time is speeding up. Um, you know, we're emerging back into the world as our restrictions ease, kind of blinking into the sunlight, and it's a completely different, different world. Time is, since February 4th, when Xi and Putin met, time has sped up and it's not slowing down. Yeah, talk to me a little bit more about that, because we've had AUKUS, we've had the Solomons deal, we had that deal on February 4 between China and Russia, the draft security deal that was leaked this week, all of these arrangements within a very short space of time, do you get the sense that the geopolitical standoff in the Pacific is intensifying? Well, what I would say is the geopolitical standoff has moved from the South China Sea to the South Pacific. And that was always our concern that, you know, we started five years ago, you know, on, on your show, we were talking about the risks that were accumulating. It's happened very fast and now we're facing it in the Pacific. 
Why does it matter if China is interested in the South Pacific? Because of the way they project power, it's been the Belt and Road has ended up being destabilizing. I mean, we've seen what's happened in, in Sri Lanka, the way the process captures elites, the corruption, the destabilization of civil society. These are all sorts of the of of the risks of you know a non-democratic country as China getting involved in, in domestic politics. But, but how is that any better or worse than having you know, Western superpowers as the predominant influence in the South Pacific? It, it, there's, there's a great line in the Financial Times, I, mean, I think it was Gary Rockman, talked about, um, you know, the, the West are hypocritical. Yes, we're hypocrites. Um, but at least we have checks and balances, and at least you know on balance we try to to do good. China's moves really are about raw power. The Communist Party um, is still you know the government. Xi Jinping has shown himself, and with his alignment like Putin, that he disregards the the system we've built over 70 years. So it's naturally destabilizing. Rodney, can you talk to us a bit more about that February 4th deal, that economic and security pact? signed between Russia and China? It, it's, you know, even as Russia has invaded Ukraine, even as we, we've seen the terrible loss of life and the catastrophe, you know, just this week when, when President Biden was in Japan, the, the, the Russians and the Chinese did a joint exercise with bombers flying close to Japan. So there's a clear military and security alignment that will last beyond the Ukraine war and in, in a way makes our region less safe. Mm. less stable and, you know, represents a direct threat to New Zealand's interests. From what you have seen of the draft security agreement leaked this week, what is the likelihood that we could see more Pacific nations coming to some sort of agreement with China? Well, some, you know, some countries like we've seen with Fiji um, signing up to the US Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, um, that will balance it. But there'll be smaller countries where, you know, the enticement of doing deals with China, of travelling to Beijing, of the capital that flows, is just too great. And, and that will add to instability in the region. What did you make of Joe Biden's comments this week? That, well, it's interesting, you know, particularly of the Taiwan comments that stood out. And yet we just have to face the reality of what the situation we are in. Taiwan is critical to Japan's security. It's critical to our own security. I always remember my father saying that, you know, when he was a teenager in Singapore fell, the impact it was on, on New Zealand psychology. And in some ways, Taiwan today plays a similar role. It's critical to our region. It's cr critical for technology. And to have Taiwan under a military threat um, destabilizes our region. Did Biden know what he was doing when he answered as frankly as he did? Well, he said it three times. It's hard to have a gaffe three times. He was in Japan. I mean, you know, the Japanese island of Miyakojima is only like 100 kilometres from Taipei. Um, he knew what he was saying. How does New Zealand fit into all of this? Well, New Zealand has an independent foreign policy, and, you know, we've seen Finland and Sweden kind of abandon their foreign policy, independent foreign policies, and look to join with NATO under the pressure of Russia. No one's suggesting we do that, but we clearly need to fortify our independent foreign policy, and that means doing things we haven't done before. Like what? Well, I think we need to look at our military spending. We need to think about our security. We've thought in terms of foreign policy as trade. We have to think in terms of foreign policy as security first and trade second. That means things like buying drones for the, to, with the P-8s so we can patrol our EEZ. We, can, um, we may want to build anti-ship capability so we can enforce the EEZ. I mean, one of the risks with the Solomons deal is not that they have a military base in the Solomons, but that we get swarms of Chinese fishing fleets coming down here. It's the fishing fleets in the South China Sea that have been destabilising, and that will be our risk as well. So, so just to be really clear, you think New Zealand needs to consider increasing its military capacity, buying drones and potentially buying anti-ship or anti-aircraft missiles? Yeah, we're a maritime nation. Um, we've got an enormous maritime space with our EEZ. It's now going to be contested. And all of China's moves um, in the last five years have been taking us in this direction. But now, as I said, you know, time has sped up. We've got to be prepared to defend our interests, and we can't do that with words.
there'll be people calling you a hawk this morning, Rodney, people who think that sounds like an extreme response to the geopolitical dynamics in our region at the moment. What would be your response to that? We're living in extreme times. We didn't think, we thought, and we positioned our foreign policy, you know, from 1990 to 2020 on a world of stability where trade comes first, where shared interests dominated differences, where countries didn't seek to project power through military force. That's all changed. To be clear, though, New Zealand couldn't expect to match China's military might. I mean, China has the largest navy of any country in the world. Well, what we've seen with Ukraine, of course, is that the future is with asymmetric warfare and developing asymmetric strategies. So it's not about buying subs, it's not about buying frigates, it's about using drones, which are not manned, it's about protecting our EEZ, and it's about having, you know, strike capability. Since the Skyhawks, we gave up that strike capability, but the world was a different place in 2000 to what we face today. And we can't look at Ukraine on our front pages every day. We can't look at the moves that China's making and not adapt and adjust. How would China react if New Zealand were to increase military fortifications? Look, if China, if, if New Zealand, so this week China is talking to the Cook Islands and UAE directly. If this was us, China would accuse us of, of interfering in their domestic affairs. That request should have come through Wellington. The foreign policy for the Cook Islands and UAE is managed. For New Zealand, that's something that the, the people of, of, of those countries have, have asked for and mm. wanted to maintain. And yet China's going behind our backs. We, we have to do what's best for ourselves and put security before trade. What will be the impact on our trade if we make that switch? Oh, we just don't know. I mean, zero COVID in China is hitting the economy incredibly hard. We think uh, GDP will be down sharply in, in, in the second quarter. There's no sign of any relaxation to zero COVID. That they look like they're going to go the distance. So the economic outlook anyway is, cl is clouded anyway. We just have to make the decisions that are best for, for our security and, and for our interests. How do you feel the Foreign Minister, Nanaya Mahuta, is handling the changing dynamics in the Pacific? I think for all of us, you know, we've been isolated for, for nearly two and a half years. Um, we have to re-engage with the world and we have to be much more active in the Pacific. But we also need to say, even if we'd done that, we, we may not be able to kind of contest the, 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 the lure of China. Um, it's China, for, for many small countries, is a very attractive partner with mm. their wealth, with the way, um, you know, you interact with them. But we have to, have to at least, you know, contest that space, and so far we haven't been. The former Foreign Minister Winston Peters says New Zealand has effectively dropped the ball in the Pacific. But are there changing dynamics on New Zealand, or does Australia bear a bigger part of the responsibility? I, I think we all do, and this would have, we would have come to this point, no matter what we would have done, we would have come to this point. Mm. China's pursuing a very aggressive strategy, and there's nothing we could have done. We've tried to be a partner with China, China. we've tried to sign on to their programs, we've tried to pacify them. Mm. None of that's worked. So I don't think we could have done anything that would have changed arriving at this point. The Prime Minister is currently in the United States. For some weeks now, it has looked uncertain as to whether or not she would have a meeting in the White House with Joe Biden. That will be going ahead in a couple of days' time. What is the significance of that meeting? Well, that's, that's good news. I mean, we've looked to the US for trade. We've always wanted an FTA. But now we have to think about security. We have to think about what the changing map of, of the Indo-Pacific, of the Asia-Pacific, what does that mean for us? And we need the strongest possible relationship with the United States. That doesn't mean, you know, we're giving up our independent foreign policy, but we need a stronger relationship than we've had for the last 20 or 30 years, and we need to, to work on that. Right. Do you think the US will be open to that, will be supportive of New Zealand taking a stronger position? Yes, absolutely. But again, we have to recognise with the issues in the Congress and, and the, you know, the Democrats are going to lose the House in the midterms, with a divided US, 
there's very few prospects for FTA or trade gains. It's no longer about trade. It's about a relationship focused on security and stability in, in our region. Rodney, what do you think is the likeliest scenario for how all of this plays out? Like I say, it is remarkable how much has changed just in the last six months or so. What might change over the next five years? Uh, look, it's even very hard to look five months ahead in China right now. I think Xi Jinping and his leadership has evolved along a worst-case scenario. We've talked about that over recent years, the rise of Xi and what it meant. I think we've arrived at a point in terms of his economic management domestically and the geopolitical management that is, is, is much worse for, for New Zealand and much worse for the world and even worse for China than we, we imagined. What is the likelihood of a military conflict in the Pacific? I, I See, I, I think that's not our immediate risk. Of course, with Taiwan, you know, Taiwan lies in the Pacific, and that mm. risk is, is much higher than in the past. I think our issue is going to be projection of power, of, of using armed militia, of using Coast Guard, of using short of military, like fishing fleets. That's going to be our challenge, and I think that moment has arrived. That was Rodney Jones of Wigram Capital Partners. So you know we have approached the Chinese embassy and asked for an interview, but our request wasn't granted. Australia's new government, meanwhile, is hustling. She's been in the role for less than a week, but new Foreign Minister Penny Wong has already visited Japan and Fiji. Jennifer Su is a research fellow specialising in China relations at the Lowy Institute in Sydney, and I asked her what Australia's new government means for dynamics in the Pacific. So the change in government uh, has indicated for, at least from Australia's perspective, that um, a Labour government is much more willing to engage with our Pacific partners on um, issues that they have nominated as most important, and that is climate change. Um, our Foreign Minister Penny Wong has indicated that she's willing to put forward a climate change envoy. And so I think these are issues that... Um, the Pacific Island nations have indicated as being particularly pertinent and, you know, it threatens their livelihoods in so many ways with climate change and that the ALP government here in Australia is willing to take that seriously. How concerned should New Zealand and Australia be about China's influence in the Pacific? China is becoming more um, present in the Pacific and for many um, traditional stakeholders in the area like Australia, New Zealand and the US see China as a competitor rather than as a partner. So China under um, Xi Jinping is becoming more um, bold, I guess, in their um, outreach to Pacific Island nations. And this is something both Australia and New Zealand um, is and have had to contend with. So I think China is doing what um, in many ways China does best in terms of its foreign policy in the area, and that is to capitalise on windows of opportunity. And here, um, where they're about to ink the security deal with Solomon Islands, they see that there's an opportunity for other potential deals to be made with other island nations. With Solomon Islands, they have been put under the spotlight, and we've seen, you know, a number of important trips made by um, the US and Australia in the last few weeks um, to Solomon Islands. So that spotlight is intensely on the Pacific. and um, But here in Australia, during the election campaign, with um, the security deal being signed between Beijing and Onyara, I think for Beijing, they see it as, uh, and uh, they see it as a window of opportunity as Australia transitions to the next government. Um, the full cabinet is yet to be sworn in here in Australia. And so um, the scramble to get all those ducks in place presents um, China with an opportunity to make this trip um, uh, with Wang Yi leading it and perhaps um, sign up um, a few more nations uh, to be part of a deal that China sees as and what it causes comprehensive community development. Scott Morrison presented himself as tough on China. Will the new Australian government be much different? Much of that dialogue, much of the um, way Australia's policy is shaped um, in terms of national security and foreign policy, defence, those structures are now baked 
into the cake. And it's really hard for the new government to backtrack on that, um, to say, um, uh, renege on the AUKUS submarine deal, despite its cost, um, it's uh, Australia's shortage of skills and capability to meet um, that demand. So that, um, that is very much already in place in the way Australia engages with China um, in the national security sense. So for an ALP government to walk back on that, um, it may uh, lead to you know, accusations of being soft on China for being uh, not stringent enough and securing securing both nationals, national borders and regional security. So I think a lot of those um, structures are in place, but the way things can perhaps be done a little bit differently with regards to Australia and China is the way in which um, the words chosen by ministers, um, the tone, the rhetoric, um, instead of having a war-like um, narrative in how we think about China and address China, there could be um, perhaps more um, points of commonality. Um, for example, China is willing to work with Pacific Island nations on issues of climate change as well. So these are sort of, you know, small but important points of commonality in which perhaps Australia and China can start um, dialoguing again rather than being in the freezer. Australia's new Foreign Minister Penny Wong is herself of Chinese-Malaysian heritage. Will that factor in any way in her relationship with her Chinese counterparts? So many here see that as um, symbolic. Um, it, you know, she's the first foreign-born minister, uh, foreign minister to take the position and her ethnic Chinese heritage is something to be celebrated, but um, it can work um, for her um, in her dialogue and negotiations with China, but it, it could possibly also work against her because those with ethnic Chinese heritage, when they engage with um, the Chinese system, um, often uh, uh, the Chinese will say, you know, uh, you are of Chinese heritage, you should know. Um, so, you know, it, it can work um, in both ways. Um, but I I believe she is a very um, fair-minded and a, a woman who stands her ground and she will be well uh, respected by her peers. In the election, we saw big swings away from the Morrison government in areas that have high proportions of Chinese Australians. I know that we don't have a full breakdown of the vote at this stage, but do you think those Chinese-Australian communities contributed to that swing? And if so, what is the importance of that? So uh, there isn't one Chinese-Australian block vote. For example, Gladys Liu, who was the sitting member for Chisholm in Victoria, she is also of Chinese heritage. She lost her seat um, to um, Labour. But as you noted, there are swings against the Liberal coalition, uh, the previous government, the Liberals, uh, in other areas, and they've been picked up by um, ALP. I think for Chinese Australians, um, they are getting uh, ever more um, worn out by that rhetoric that we started to hear um, early on this year. Uh, this has been quite persistent in the way um, politicians and um, leaders have addressed uh, or talked about China in that very strident tone, in a very warlike narrative. And so Chinese Australians were, you know, getting quite put off by it. And it was starting to have implications for Chinese Australians. And we saw that uh, early on in the pandemic where uh, you know, around language around tone, rhetoric, you know, some members of parliament referred to the COVID pandemic, uh, the COVID virus as being uh, a China virus or Wuhan virus. So, you know, that kind of language doesn't help community or social cohesion. And some, um, some of those who are in positions of leaderships have exploited that narrative. And as a result, we have seen uh, Chinese Australians um, become victims of racial discrimination, um, prejudice, um, you know, across the board. So I think um, all this is to say it's interrelated, 
but um, in my conversations with Chinese Australian community leaders, there's hope that this new government may present an opportunity for dialogue to begin again between Beijing and Canberra. What do people in Australia think of New Zealand's approach towards China? Um, there is um, awareness and caution um, in the way we address, think and perceive China in the region. Uh, New Zealand hasn't been slapped with trade sanctions, um, to, to the best of my knowledge. They haven't been frozen out of talks at high um, diplomatic levels or political levels. And so I think as, uh, New Zealand's approach is much more um, one of respect, seeing what um, the bilateral partner is like, and um, take that um, road fairly carefully and uh, balancing um, the need to be uh, present and assertive in one's own national security, but also showing respect and also accord the partner the respect that they are due. So, you know, small nations have often are great models for larger nations in terms of how foreign policy is done. Uh, under the Morrison government, the, uh, there is somewhat of a consensus that they practice megaphone diplomacy. Um, and this is not something that the Chinese form uh, uh, great with great warmth at all. So I think, you know, it's really important to gauge your audience right, but also present a, a, a front of these are our values, these are um, what we believe in but also show the respect that the bilateral partner deserves. That's Jennifer Sue of the Lowy Institute. After the break on Q&A, fix, float or freak out. The Reserve Bank sets an aggressive tone, but just how much pain is on the way for Kiwi property owners? Hoki maiti, we welcome back to Q&A. Ten days since the budget, we have actually had a bit more time to digest all of the detail in Grant Robertson's plans. And we have two stories for you this morning about budget spending that you might have missed. Pacific leaders are hoping a housing initiative revealed in Budget 2022 will transform the lives of hundreds of families. With the support of Ngāti Tōr, 300 affordable homes will be built for Pacifica and Porirua. Here's Fina Owen. Out in eastern Porirua this week, there is new hope among its Pacific population that at last they may soon be homeowners. This is the first time ever. 300 homes. Whoa! Opportunity for my people, for me, to actually be able to get a property. Minister Opito Williams Seal is leading the charge. This is unprecedented, it's historic, and I think we can be very, very proud um, that this is gonna this is gonna achieve something really significant for the for our families here, but also for the young people coming through. They come singly and in family groups. Some are old, but most are young. These are the people of the second Polynesian migration. Porirua, with its cheap state housing, suited the wave of Pacific migrants hoping for a better life. Sixty years on, many of their descendants choose to stay on here. It's home, but it's still an area of high deprivation. In eastern Porirua here, there are 7,500 Pacifica people in 2,000 households. And of those 2,000 homes, 1,600 are rented. The initial funding is 49 million for the period of this budget, but um, it, is going, it is a project that will be more than $100 million. And that makes it the biggest single allocation of government money to the Pacific community in Aotearoa, and the first partnership of its kind between Pacifica peoples and iwi Māori. 
I am so grateful to Ngati Toa. Can you see straight ahead? Can you see where I'm looking where those trees stop up on the hill there? Next to Porirua Harbour, Ngati Toa Rangatira CEO Helmut Modlik is pointing out future housing developments. Ngati Toa, the council and Kainga Ora are all part of a massive regeneration of Porirua housing. Ngati Toa has first right of refusal on over 2,000 sections cleared of Kaingaroa homes. Helmut recalls a meeting up in Cannons Creek a few years ago with Pacific leaders. They expressed their feelings of powerlessness, really. You know, they're not the people of, this isn't their country, they're, they're, they're not well off. So I, I feel comfortable that my old people were giving me a nudge to pay attention to this need here. So he proposed that over 300 of those cleared sections be transferred to the Pacifica community and told them... So if you're amenable, if you're willing, let's tighten our scrum, come under the korowai of Ngāti Toa, and we'll do what we can to support the uh, well-being and prosperity of your people and mana. Those ancient connections were strengthened when Ngāti Toa welcomed Pacific leaders onto their marae. We felt then we truly belong to Podiro, that we are part of Podiro, Podiro is part of us, Majito is part of us, we are part of them. We have a collective responsibility to make sure that we're ensuring that our young people don't have to face the hardships of the past several decades now. How will it work? Fa'ama Tuwainu Tenu Pereira heads the Central Pacific Collective contracted to deliver the houses. The funding will allow us to build homes that our people can afford given the kind of incomes that they are living with. Most of them will never have that opportunity in their lifetimes if they don't get these sort of assistance. Would there be any pathways offered, any financial pathways to assist? Well, the whole idea here around home ownership is progressive home ownership. So there will be share equity schemes, for example, which will allow us to invest, but also allow the homeowners to contribute something without paying the full cost of the mortgage. Cook Islanders have been in Porirua for generations, but Samoan and Tongan make up the majority of Pacifica in Porirua. Long-time community worker Kitiona Tawira wants to see a fair allocation of houses. It's a concern for me as a Cook Islander and uh, for my brothers and sisters of the Tokelauan community and also my brothers and sisters of the Nguyen community. We don't have the numbers. Yeah, and then we know that usually it's a it's a number game. This for me personally, I want a quota system to happen in proportion to the population. If there's 300 homes, I want 200 for Cook Islands, 100 for Samoa. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> the Pacific People's Minister is already thinking beyond Porirua. He's keen on similar partnerships with other iwi. I'm going to be holding this model up to our friends of uh, Ngati Fatua. Um, and discussions are underway. I'm also going to be holding up this model with Ngaitahu or any other iwi in the motu. Our communities need to have a say in what sort of homes. Uh, is it fit for purpose? We're used to eating together as a family in the big space, open space back home in the islands, and then we come into a lifestyle where it is very limited in a small dining area. So now it all begins, the planning, the design of the homes and the village. The conversations I've had with them is what would be ideal and is... Uh, you know, to reimagine what does a what does a, a, a Pacific village look like in the 21st century? You know, and yeah, go for gold. Fina Owen with that report. If you want to contact the Q and A team, please call it or my. These are our main platforms. You can email us if you like, or you can contact us on Twitter or Facebook. Up next, economic forecasts have New Zealand inching ever closer to recession. But is it just the cost of COVID? A former Reserve Bank governor tells us if there's anything we can do now to soften the blow. Morena, welcome back. 
With inflation at 6.9%, the Reserve Bank didn't waste time in lifting the official cash rate another 50 basis points this week. And there could be more pain to come for Kiwi borrowers, with Bank Governor Adrian Orr signalling further rate hikes won't be far off. But is central bank policy to blame for the inflation we're experiencing right now? Or is it a reasonable cost for the relative economic stability we experienced for much of the pandemic? Don Brash is a former governor of the Reserve Bank and is with us this morning. Kia ora, good morning. Good morning, Jack. So the Reserve Bank this week clearly looking to act relatively aggressively to try and get on top of inflation in this unique economic moment. Did Adrian Orr do the right thing? Uh, I don't think there's any doubt about that at all. I think the market was expecting a 50 basis point increase in the cash rate, uh, and that's what he delivered. Um, Clearly, he's got a major headache on his hands at 6.9%. Some of that comes from international forces he can't control at all. But some of it is coming from domestic pressures, where the economy has clearly uh, got a higher level of total demand mm. than it can cope with at stable prices. Talk to us a little bit more about that. To what extent is government spending... Uh, fiscal policy responsible for the inflation we're experiencing right now? Uh, I can't put a quantity on that. But is it uh, helpful or unhelpful? It's clearly unhelpful. And Adrian Orr himself said this in the context of an interview he did some months ago now with mm. the IMF. Monetary policy needs mates. And that's a, a long-standing uh, slogan for central bankers. But the fact of the matter is both monetary policy and fiscal policy influence the level of total demand. Mm. Uh, so the stronger fiscal policy is, the stronger government spending is, relative to its tax revenue, uh, the stronger Adrian Orr's response has to be. And that's just the way it is. Does that mean then that Grant Robertson and the government are not doing their bit? Uh, well, um, I think the general uh, consensus among economists is that had the budget been less stimulatory than it in fact turned out to be, monetary policy would not be so tight and forecast to be tighter. Um, but uh, that's always a question of balance. And my own judgment is fiscal policy is too stimulatory. Mm. I think that was the Treasury's assessment also. I think the Treasury clearly indicated that the last minute addition of the, of the uh, cost of living benefit mm. would add to aggregate demand and therefore to, to inflationary pressures. Um, so I think that the budget is to some extent responsible for Adrian's rather aggressive response to monetary policy. When you look at Grant Robertson's plans for the next couple of years, as laid out in, in the budget documents of last week, he says the government is looking to tighten the reins a little bit. Will that have any significant impact? And is it going to be possible to follow through with those promises? Uh, well, that's a political judgment. Of course, I can't make that. But clearly, to the extent that he does cut back on government spending relative to tax revenue, that does take pressure off monetary policy. The, the two are two sides of the same coin. Mm. The more government stimulates, the more Adrian Orr has to crank back on, on uh, or tighten up monetary policy, push up mortgage rates effectively. And, and it's really, really therefore a question of who pays the cost of mm. getting inflation down. Is it the homeowner with a big mortgage, seeing his interest rates go higher? Or is it other people who don't get the benefits which they would otherwise get from, from government spending? Who should it be? <laughs> that is a, it's an entirely political judgment. I mean, you're in a unique position of having, having been in both worlds, I suppose. Uh, well, I, my, my assessment is that the government spending policy is being unhelpful mm. in that sense. Um, on the other hand, I think it is desirable that the housing market gets a bit slowed down. I think that's a welcome development. Right. Uh, it won't be welcome to someone who's just bought a house at the top of the market, of course. But uh, as we both recognise, house prices in New Zealand are outrageously uh, over the top, particularly in Auckland, but not only in Auckland. Mm. Uh, so some reduction of those house prices is to be welcomed, I think. OK, I'm going to ask you about house prices a bit more in a minute because I'd like to dig mm. into that. But I, I asked you about the drivers of inflation. You said that some fiscal policy is driving it. We've got international pressures as well. To what extent has monetary policy and the Reserve Bank's policy throughout the early stages of this pandemic contributed to inflation? Uh, well, I think it was President Truman who said uh, every schoolboy's hindsight is better than the president's foresight. Um, so I'm a bit reluctant to criticise the governor, but I think the general assessment among many economists was that he was too easy too long. Right. It was entirely appropriate to have a very stimulatory monetary policy at the beginning of the pandemic. 
uh, aggregate demand was, was shrinking, people were worried about the recession, a big recession potentially, uh, so monetary policy was appropriately easy. Mm. Uh, did he tighten quickly enough? Some people would say no. He did continue with easy policies for too long. And he's having to pay the, the or we're paying the price for that in a sense by having to tighten more aggressively now. See, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, obviously hindsight's 2020, right? But but I'm fascinated in the decision that central bank governors have to make when facing an economic crisis and trying to set an appropriate level of fiscal stimulus. Is it better when trying to hit that perfect mark to overshoot and give an economy too much stimulus? or better to undershoot? <laughs> well, obviously, it's desirable not to do either. Of, of course. course, of course. That's right. Um, I, I don't think we can fault the Reserve Bank in terms of running a very easy policy at the beginning of the pandemic. Right. I think that's entirely appropriate. Should they have begun to ease off that stimulus sooner than they did? Mm. Probably yes. Um, no doubt about that. If the cost of maintaining very low unemployment throughout that two years of, of uncertainty and having relative economic stability for that, for that period is that we are now experiencing inflation at a 30-year high. Is, is this just us receiving the bill finally? Is, is, is there an argument to be made that actually even though we're experiencing pain now, this pain is the cost for the relative stability we enjoyed throughout that period? Um, well, I mean, um, in one sense that's true, but, but clearly the idea, looking back on it, would have been to tighten somewhat earlier uh, mm. than, they than they did, than the Reserve Bank did. Um, hindsight, as you say, wonderful thing. Is there a point in particular that you can identify when perhaps things should have been tightened? Because I, I think back to those, you know, different variant outbreaks, for example, mm. and often they seemed to coincide with a monetary policy statement when perhaps analysts had been expecting the Reserve Bank to increase the OCR and then all of a sudden at the 11th hour we had an outbreak and they said, mm, actually, we're just going to hold off a little bit longer. That's right. And, and again, as I say, I don't want to second guess at mm. precisely which point of time they should have started tightening, but I think even Adrian Orr would agree that the wisdom of hindsight, he would have started tightening slightly earlier. Let's talk about house prices, because one a, a effect uh, of the volatility we've seen, I suppose, um, uh, one effect, rather, of, of the inflation we've seen over the last couple of years, obviously, is that housing prices um, have soared mm -hmm. and are now experiencing a significant degree of volatility. What do you think needs to happen in the housing space for New Zealand to return to a period of relative stability? Uh, well, the answer... Ironically, it uh, lies with what the Labour New Zealand First Government promised to do when they first became government in 2017. The speech from the throne at that uh, 2017 time mm. said, we will remove the metropolitan urban limit around Auckland. The Prime Minister is now on record as saying she will not do that. Mm. But house prices are not so high in New Zealand. It's land prices under the houses mm. which are high. Um, there was an article in the Herald uh, a couple of months ago talking about the average house prices by the seven largest home builders in New Zealand. Fletcher Building, or was it G.J. Gardner, I think was built the most expensive houses, mm. average 350,000. 350,000? Boy, that doesn't sound bad. Without the land. Mm. And when you're paying a million dollars for a tenth of an acre in Papakura, bare land, you can't put a tent on that and make it affordable. But is sprawl the answer? By, by removing those urban boundaries, wouldn't that have other... It would have a sprawl effect without question. Mm. That's true. Um, but uh, does it have a bad effect on the environment? That's the more debatable question. We know that building high-rise apartments, and by the way, I live in one, so I'm mm. not against high-rise apartments at all. Uh, you have to build concrete, you build steel, very carbon-intensive mm. activities. Uh, so we can argue that... Uh, a different issue, but the question of how you make housing more affordable, you have to get the price of land down. Mm. And and frankly, uh, the government has set its, set its head against that. Mm. Prime Minister's made it clear she will not do that. Um, and as I say, I don't see how she's going to get house prices down in a fundamental way until the land price goes down. Is there is there any other alternative outside of removing metropolitan boundaries for reducing the price of land? Uh, well, I can't think what that might be. 
frankly. Mm. We're a country of five million people in a country larger than the UK in area. And we're paying these absurd prices for a tenth of an acre. It's not like it's a hectare or, mm. or two acre block. Um, in, in some ways, um, we use a huge amount of land in lifestyle blocks scattered all over the place. Uh, where you can't, not allowed to build more than one house on a mm. six and a half hectare uh, block. That, that's sprawl if you want. Let's go back to monetary policy mm. then. You know, I went back and looked at the uh, Reserve Bank's monetary policy statement from May 2020. It forecast house prices would drop 9% over the rest of 2020. Instead, during that period, they increased yep. 20%. And that's hardly unique. I know the orthodoxy among uh, economists was that house prices would significantly drop throughout the course of the pandemic. Why have these forecasts been so wrong? Uh, well, clearly everybody in the world, not just in New Zealand, expected the pandemic to have a dramatic effect on, on dropping demand. Uh, and as a consequence, central banks and governments all over the world embarked upon very stimulatory policies. Mm. Now, uh, New Zealand was, was among the countries which stimulated most aggressively in that period, along with the United States, for example. Um, and and uh, in a sense, we were all wrong. Um, and, and we're now having to wind that back. And it, it cannot be done without some pain. Mm. The question is, is it borne by... Uh, mortgage holders, people who are paying more uh, interest on their mortgage, mm. or is it paid by other people? But people are going to experience pain, unfortunately. At the moment, aggregate demand, total demand, exceeds the country's capacity to produce at stable prices. And, and how you wind that back, you do it either by tightening monetary policy or by tightening fiscal policy. And fiscal policy isn't being tightened at the moment. So then, keeping in mind what I've just said about economic forecast, <laughs> What do you see happening over the next 18 months to two years? Uh, I think we'll be uh, lucky to avoid an actual downturn in activity, a recession. I think the governor was careful to avoid using that word in his statement, but uh, he's now got a major inflation headache on his hands, partly offshore, which mm. he can't do anything about, but uh, importantly, domestically as well. And winding that back is going to be tough, and people would be hurt by that process. So from the information you have available at the moment, if you were in Adrian Orr's shoes, what sort of movement would you be anticipating for the OCR? What sort of top level? Yeah. Uh, well, I think he's got 3.9 in his forecast for mm. down the track. Uh, I think he'd be lucky to top out at that rate. I think he might go higher. Now, we talk about 3.9 as high only because for a long time it's been very, very low. Mm. Um, but, I mean, when the OCR was first introduced in 1999, mm. uh, it was 4.5. Uh, and, of course, went a lot higher when, when Alan Bollard was, was governor. Mm. I think it got to eight, eight and a quarter at one point. I don't see it going to that kind of level, but he'll be lucky if it doesn't go above, above four, in my view. Yeah, how high do you think it could go? Uh, well, again, it depends partly on what, what the government's response is. Mm. If the government uh, has a very uh, spended-up big budget next mm. year, for example, going to the election, which I guess in historical terms wouldn't be a surprise, uh, he's going to go above 3.9, I'd be fairly confident. You feel pessimistic when it comes to the likelihood of a recession in New Zealand. What would be the impact of a recession at this point? Uh, well, sadly, it would mean a lot of people would lose their jobs, uh, companies would fail, and, and uh, that's not something which anyone welcomes. Mm. Do you miss being in that position? <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes, yes. <laughs> Other times, not so much. <laughs> Thank you very much for coming in. We You're really welcome. appreciate it. Mm. Dr Don Brash. Mm. After the break on Q&A, move that bus. Hidden away in the budget plans, millions of dollars in funding that could change the face of Parliament. We'll have the details for you next. Hoki maiti, we welcome back. Funding has been announced which could see some new buildings spring up on Parliament grounds. The new building will help to solve the space problem that our House of Power has had for a number of years now. Connor Sterling reports. It's 40 years since the Beehive's last brick was laid in central Wellington. Alongside Parliament House, these buildings might look the business, but the Speaker says the cost of doing the business within them has become expensive, inefficient and unsustainable. 
Budget 22 secured at least $27 million worth of funding to solve Parliament's space problem and finally build two new structures for MPs and ministers. It's hoped the additions will create a future fit Parliament. It is good to see a decision being made um, and that ultimately over the next few years we'll be able to accommodate uh, all of our MPs and staff on campus rather than down the road. It's the latest in a long line of reconfigurations. current Parliament House was built to just half its planned length due to economic downturn in the shadow of the First World War. And by the time it became too cramped, rather than finishing it off, a push for modernity saw the beehive constructed instead. The woes continued and in the early 90s Parliament House was looking its age and in need of renovation. Now vacated, members moved temporarily to the leased Bowen House across the road. At least, it was supposed to be temporarily. When it came time to move back, New Zealand had entered the MMP age. We had all the additional MPs, plus additional parties, and parties require staff. So there was an explosion in the number of people, but not an explosion in the space. Jim Bolger's government proposed a new ministerial building at the rear of the complex, but the so-called parliamentary palace soon became a political hot potato and New Zealand First dropped their support. New Zealand First is out of that arrangement. How about moving the beehive rearward and completing Parliament House? The New Zealand First factor again played its part. In a written statement, Jim Bolger says it's pointless to proceed with the feasibility study to move the beehive and complete Parliament House in the 1911 design. The can kicked down the road, David Carter picked it up again in 2016, revealing plans for new builds to some support. But once again, New Zealand First wasn't keen. Uh, the then Speaker David Carter and uh, Jerry Bonner came to see me, with every other party signed up <laughs> to now build a new parliamentary building. And we asked, well, where are the plans? Or oh, we haven't got any. Now, I'm sorry, some of us have been around too long to waste money like that. Space became further constrained when both Bowen House and the Press Gallery Annex were vacated due to earthquake concerns. It's made for a headache for the Parliament. That's something many can agree on. When we lost Bowen House over the road, um, we've had to squeeze everybody into campus and what that's meant is a lot of parliamentary services staff and so on have had to move down to Lambton Quay. Ministers are now spilling out of the beehive into the, the old building, all of which is squeezing the space. But there's not total agreement on the solution. While David Seymour says he knows investment is needed in the space, he's not convinced of the timing. I'm just not sure that at the current economic climate is the right time uh, to be going on a giant building spree in Wellington, and I'm not sure that we've got all the economy out of the buildings that we have. As for Winston Peters... It's a continuation of an almighty bungle and mess uh, by successive politicians. Here we've got their leaders in the form of parliamentarians suggesting that they expend more money when we all have got to tighten our belt here to get through this. Agreement or not, the project's now out for tender, with the final cost and work timeline yet to be announced. Our imperfect parliament soon to become a little more comfortable for those we put into power. Connor Sterling with that report. Stay with us, Q&A is back after the break. Kia ora, welcome back. Ko mutu, that is Q&A for this week. From the Q&A team, thanks for watching and nā mihi ki i ngā karere. Thanks for your messages. Just so you know, we are off next week for Queen's birthday, but we'll be back the following week. So, until then, kia pai te rā. Q&A is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air.